Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south, go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he arose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what it is you are reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation, and from, for his life is taken away from the earth? And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And they were, as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Astus, and he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Well, good morning, church, and I hope everyone had a, a good week this week. And it's always great to see young babies being born into our church and then being able to bring them before you like we did this morning. You know, recently, <clears throat> I've been reading through the book of John just in my own personal devotions and quiet time. You know, when you come to the end of the book of John, in the last verse uh, John uh, admits in that last verse that Jesus did all kinds of things, events, and he says things that uh, you know, are left out, and that if he tried to include everything that Jesus did and said, then he probably would need all the books in existence at that time to put it in. It's kind of a hyperbolic statement, but it's, it's clear that there was a lot that Jesus said and did that John didn't, didn't give us. And and it always kind of makes me, you know, ask the question, so why did the Holy Spirit prompt John to give us those events, those words of Jesus and not other events and other words, especially because John says there's so many other things. You know, I'm kind of curious about what were those other things, right? I'd like to know. And yet we got what we got. So why those things? And I think you have something maybe similar, the book of Acts. Remember the book of Acts? I mean, the title's Acts. It, you, maybe in your book, your Bible, it might say the Acts of the Apostles, but that's, that's just a guess. Uh, it, it could be the Acts of the Holy Spirit, Acts of the Apostles. We, we don't know. Uh, that's, that's a guess. Um, and, and clearly, Luke is doing the same thing. He's giving a historical account of the you know, opening couple of decades, maybe three, four decades, three decades, I'd guess, of the, of the early church. And he's being led by the Holy Spirit to, to create this for early disciples or, you know, maybe second generation Christians and, and some friends who had lived much later, uh, Theophilus, for example, 30 years, 40 years after these events had occurred, to give him some understanding and background of, of what happened after Jesus' resurrection 
And remember, Acts is part two, right? Luke is part one, the gospel of Jesus, and Acts is part two of of his two-part volume. And he's writing this to help people understand. But again, why does he include some things and then obviously leave out all kinds of events that happen in the early church? Now, you can understand why he put some things in, right? It's kind of obvious why he would include the, the, you know, the martyrdom of Stephen, you know, what, the, what Randy talked about. Chapters six and seven, the last, you know, those last couple of chapters there, you got to include the first martyr in the, in the book of the Acts of the Apostles and the early history of the church. That's a, that's a big deal. You got to put that story in there. And, and likewise, the, the first part of chapter eight, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, uh, out of that martyrdom of Stephen, you had the first general persecution. And in that, if you remember from that message a couple of weeks ago, those of you who heard it, uh, the, it seems like the Hellenistic Jews, the, the Jews who um, maybe their, their, their lineage or their heritage is another country. At some point in their family heritage, they were dispersed out into the Mediterranean world. Greek was their native language, but they had, for whatever reason, migrated back to Israel, to Jerusalem. They had been living there for a while. Now this persecution breaks out. Stephen was a Hellenistic Jew. And, uh, and so he had been preaching in the Hellenistic synagogue there in Jerusalem. And, and the Hellenistic Jews and the, and the Sadducees, they were very violent and they kill Stephen. And now this persecution breaks out. And you see the Hellenistic Jews kind of fleeing from Jerusalem. The apostles, they stay in Jerusalem. They seem to be okay, but not these Hellenistic Jews. They, they flee and Philip goes to Samaria. Remember this, right? Philip goes to Samaria. Samaria of all places. Samaria, that place that, you remember Samaria? That's, the, that's like a cuss word. When, when, the, when, the, when the Pharisees wanted to insult Jesus, they called him a Samaritan. <laughs> that gives you an idea of what they thought of Samaria. The Samaritans were the half-breeds. They were the, they were the byproduct of, of Jews who intermarried with with pagan uh, you know, people who had been transplanted into the northern Israel by the Assyrian Empire 700 years before. And for 700 years, they had been at, uh, you know, kind of at just co- in conflict with the pure blood uh, Hebrews. They, they rejected the prophets. They rejected Psalms and the historical books. They only accepted the, the books of Moses and they had re-edited the books of Moses. They had their own temple. They didn't accept the temple in Jerusalem. And there was just deep, deep, deep hatred between the Samaritans and all the other Jews. The, the straightest place, the straightest route between let's say Galilee and Jerusalem was to go through, through Samaria. They would not walk through Samaria right? They went around Samaria. They just hated Samaria, right? And so here at the beginning of chapter eight, you see Stephen, or excuse, after Stephen's martyrdom, you see Philip going to Samaria and he begins to preach the gospel there. And God does this amazing work, this evangelism. I mean, this is like a, you know, a Billy Graham crusade in a city, right? The city is coming to Christ, And it is so powerful that there's this guy that's mentioned in chapter eight. We didn't get into it. Simon the magician, right? The church history says that he ends up being kind of like the the originator of the Gnostic movement, Gnosticism. Some of you might be aware of this, of, of of that word. 
And so he has a strong hold on this area. And the preaching of the gospel is so strong that this hold that this guy has over the, the political leaders and the religious leaders and the people, it's broken. And all these people come to Christ and it's such a big deal that the apostles, several of the apostles, Peter, John, and others, they leave Jerusalem and they come down to Samaria to check it out, to see, is this really happening, right? I mean, this is the fulfillment of what Jesus said to the apostles in Acts chapter one, verse eight. He says, you're to go back to Jerusalem, wait, you're gonna be filled with the Holy Spirit, you're to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, that had already been happening, and Samaria. Now you have in chapter eight, the first part of chapter eight, the fulfillment of what God, Jesus had commanded right before his ascension. It's obvious why that is in the book of Acts especially when you know, the apostles come down, they lay hands upon the Samaritans and they have their own Pentecost. The Holy Spirit descends upon them like he did the Jews in Acts chapter two. And that was a pivotal moment because what this does is it's doing a couple of things. It's telling all the Jews, right? That your hatred of the Samaritans, is, it goes away, it's done because they are now recipients of the Holy Spirit, just like you. They are not second-class members of the new covenant in the church of Jesus Christ. But it's also significant for the Samaritans that the Jewish apostles come from Jerusalem. Remember, they don't, Jews, Jerusalem, eh, they come from Jerusalem, they come down. How do they get the Holy Spirit? It's from these Jewish apostles from Jerusalem where the church is headquartered that they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay, Samaritans, no more of this division and derision towards Jews and Jerusalem. And, the, and that, no, in the church, these divisions of Jew and Samaritan, they're gone. And the church is under the authority of these apostles and it was all taken care of in one key transitional moment in Samaria with this happening. So it's kind of obvious why this event was included in Acts chapter eight. But why is an Ethiopian eunuch included? So? <laughs> I mean, lots of people were coming to Christ. Lots of people were believing in Jesus. Why pick out this one guy? Out of all the thousands of people who were being converted and would be converted, why is his story included in chapter eight? I mean, chapter eight starts with this story of persecution and a large group of unexpected people, you know, from the city coming into the kingdom of God, and it ends in a desert with one unexpected person coming into the kingdom of God. What's up with that? Well, there's three characters in this story that I want us to focus on. And as we look at them, hopefully, we'll better understand why the story is included. So let's begin with the Ethiopian eunuch, a man who was sincerely searching for answers. You see this beginning in, in verse 27. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He'd come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? 
And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Well, immediately as you examine this passage, the details of the passage, you cross-reference it with maybe what we know about the history and the culture of the ancient Middle Middle East in that time, you can kind of deduce some things about this man. First is, uh, is one that may make you scratch your head. First of all, the Ethiopian eunuch was not Ethiopian, okay? As we think of Ethiopian, <laughs> let me give you that caveat. The, the Ethiopian eunuch of biblical, Ethiopia of biblical times is not the same place as the modern nation of Ethiopia. The modern nation of Ethiopia, when it was founded, took the name, and in all likelihood, because of biblical usage of the word. Okay. In the in the Bible, the, the word Ethiopia is also there's there's synonyms for that region of the world. Think Cush. Any does that sound familiar to anybody? Cush, that's in the Old Testament. Or Nubia. You ever heard the word Nubia? I think there's like I remember a rock song and my Nubian princess, right? <laughs> Whatever. Nubia. Uh, we're talking about Northeast Africa is where this is. This is uh, the upper Nile region, modern day Sudan area is where this is. Uh, Remember, okay, uh, okay, geography, I love geography. Uh, Some of you are now rolling your eyes, but Nile River, right? Runs up like the St. John's River in Florida, right? It runs north. And you remember, as it gets near the Mediterranean River, it kind of, or Mediterranean Sea kind of splits out, you know, and, and this portion where it splits out and it goes into the Mediterranean River, what is that called? The Delta. And this is known as the Lower Nile, right? And the Upper Nile is what? Down here, Northeast Africa. That's where he's from. He's from the Upper Nile area. It's about 1,500 mile journey. So 1,500 miles you know, is a long way, even in today's, you know, traveling. And he's in a chariot of all play things. So, uh, by the way, he wasn't by himself. You didn't go 1,500 miles in a chariot by yourself in the ancient world. You went in a caravan. So here he is, he's in a caravan, and he's from that part of the world, and he's, he's serving under the queen mother of that kingdom of the world, of, of that kingdom. Of, of what was known as Ethiopia, right? And the reason why we know that is Candace was not the name of the woman. That was the title for the queen mother of the king of that kingdom. And so he was the treasurer who worked underneath Candace. He was high up in the government official. He's a black African, right? He's a eunuch, which was common back in those days. And here's something else. He is a black African Jew, He's Jewish. He's not Gentile. Okay. Uh, if, if he was Gentile, um, it, it would be mentioned. He's not celebrated as the first Gentile convert. That's going to come in chapter 10. With who? Cornelius. Cornelius is the first Gentile convert. He is Jewish. Remember what he's doing. He has gone up to Jerusalem to do what? Worship. So he is Jewish. Now, he's either Jewish because somewhere in the previous centuries, in his family line, his family tree, there was the dispersion of Jews, 
And when, you know, different armies would come in and invade, people would flee and they would disperse throughout the world. And somewhere in his family line, they made their way down into Egypt into Northeast Africa and marriages took place. And his granddaddy, granddaddy, daddy was, came from Israel originally, okay? That's very possible that it happened. Remember in the 500s, Jeremiah and a bunch of Jewish refugees leave and they go to Egypt and to that area. They settle in there. So it could very well have been from that time. We don't know. So either from the dispersion, he's Jewish and his great, 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 great granddaddy came from Israel or he is a convert to Judaism and he is making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship. That's what we can know from this passage so far. And most importantly, what we know from this passage is that he is spiritually inquisitive. He has a scroll of Isaiah. So he's wealthy, he's bought a scroll, he's educated. He clearly does not suffer from motion sickness when he's traveling and he can read at the same time, unlike my wife, right? So he's got his version of the traveling iPad out. He's bored, his driver's driving down the highway. And he's trying to entertain himself. He's reading the scroll of Isaiah. He's looking for answers, trying to figure it all out, okay? That's where we are. And by the way, for some of you, that may be where you are. For some of you this morning, right here is where you land in the story. And this is where the story applies to you. Whether you're here in person or you're online, you maybe believe in God, Maybe you, in your own way, are worshiping God, but you just have a sense that something is just not right, and you're looking for answers, and you sense that there's something more, and you have questions. And, and maybe the reason why you have questions is because you, know, you were taught something as a child about Christianity, and you know, you've come back to your spiritual roots, but the dots just aren't connecting, or Perhaps you have a friend who is, is a, a, an enthusiastic Christian and you, you kind of want what they have. You know it's important and you know it gives them a lot of joy in their life and you want that, but you don't understand why it's giving them that because it's not giving you that. And you read the Bible and it doesn't make a lot of sense. Some of it does, some of it doesn't. And so you have a lot of questions. Like this Ethiopian eunuch had questions. Well, well, let me just pause for a second and just say, you know, at Covenant, um, we're okay with people who have questions. You know, it's, you, are, you are welcome in our church. We want you to come and get involved and worship with us. You can, you can come to our church services. You can come to our discipleship groups, our covenant groups, whatever. And, and don't be afraid to ask those questions. Uh, don't be afraid to express your doubts. We are not going to reject you for asking those questions and expressing your doubts. Um, we want you to. Um, we, we lo I, I love going out. Some of, one of the favorite things I love to do is just go out with people, whether a guy at lunch or a, a couple, and, and we just work through questions and, that they have about the Bible or about Christianity. And, and so we're not gonna reject you as a church. And, and one of the reasons why is every one of us who are in this church at one point or another, we've had questions and doubts. And we ask those questions, and, and the great thing about the scriptures and about our Lord is, is he didn't reject us when we brought our questions to Jesus. Jesus isn't like that. 
And the Lord that we trust in doesn't reject us when we doubt him. And he doesn't throw us out of his family when we have questions. And so we're not gonna do that to you. You're welcome to bring those questions. I was thinking about that this week and a passage that came to my mind was from Matthew 11. When Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy to bear and the burden I give you is light. So for some of us this morning, God intends to use this story to motivate us to take the next step in our spiritual journey. Do something like the Ethiopian did and admit that we need someone to help us to get the answers to the questions that that we might have. Now for others of us, God brings us to the story and he's saying something else to us through Philip's experience. So let's, let's look at him. At this early disciple, kind of a prototypical deacon, a man who's obediently sharing the gospel, this obedient servant who shares the gospel. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and he went. And verse 29, and the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. You know, as we look at Philip in this story, there's several gospel applications uh, for any of us who are followers of Jesus. The first one is that true followers of Jesus humbly and eagerly obey him. I don't know if you have stopped to think about it for a moment, but I'm sure that at least some of us, if we had gotten those initial instructions from the Lord, we might've said, "Mm, time out for a moment, God. You want me to leave the city of Samaria, where we have just broken the spiritual stronghold of Simon Magus, where we have just seen a huge number of people coming to come to Christ, and many others are still coming to Christ, and they are eager to hear the preaching of God's word, and we're having this massive campaign. We cannot sing enough verses of just as I am at the invitation. People are coming down the aisle so much. You want me to leave this massive crowd where there's so many opportunities to lead people into the kingdom of God and go to the desert? That doesn't make sense. I, I, I know myself. I know myself. If I had gotten those instructions, I would have been tempted to think, maybe I'm having a bad pizza indigestion moment. Maybe I'm misunderstanding God here. Why would I ever leave this great work here to go to the desert? That doesn't make sense, right? And yet, what do you see from this guy? He leaves this fruitful campaign in the city and in the region of Samaria, and he humbly, obediently goes right where God tells him. 
And you notice God did that. The scriptures don't tell us that the Holy Spirit gave him a reason. It just says, get on the road from Jerusalem to Gaza. He doesn't tell him, listen, this is what's going to happen. He just says, get on the road. Leave all this and go. And Philip does. He rose and he went. And then think about it like this. I mean, put yourself in Philip's shoes. You're going down the road and then you see this guy in a chariot. And he says, run up to that chariot. (laughs) Right? It's a caravan. You know, and you know, in that time and age and time, you just don't run up to a chariot. I mean, think of it like this. In our day and time, if you're stopped at a parking lot and all of a sudden a guy from out of nowhere runs up to your car, what do you do? Oh, hey guy, how are you? No. I just can't help but wonder, did the Ethiopian eunuch reach for his concealed carry crossbow or something? I mean, that's just not a normal thing that you do. And, and yet, this is what he does. He runs up to him. But true followers of Jesus, right? They humbly and eagerly obey him. And that's what Philip does. And God blesses what he does here. You know, yeah, yesterday, I, I had the... Uh, privilege. I was over at the Roar Soccer, and uh, me and some guys from our, uh, our um, covenant group, we were there flipping hot dogs and putting them into buns and things like that. And as we were doing that, I, was, I looked out, and it was just great. You know, there's just this, there was this entire, just this spirit uh, uh, in the field, and as I was walking there and back and interacting with parents, and there were just smiles everywhere, right? And there was excitement, and the kids were enjoying themselves, and there was just all this, I mean, you could just feel this, this wonderful atmosphere on this field. You know, and you look out and you see all of these uh, men and women uh, who, are, who are coaching these children and teaching them about soccer and then sitting down with them and telling them about Jesus and, and everything else. And a great day. What a, what a, and, I was, and I was sitting there as, as I was leaving and I just I prayed and I just thanked the Lord. And you know what I thanked the Lord for? It was like that, that day took, took place and it takes place every week because there's a score, scores of Phillips and Filipinas, I guess. I don't know what, what is the female of Philip. I don't know, right? And they get there early to set up and, they, and some, some get there early to set up and stay late to tear down and others come to interact with the kids and, and all working together. And there's just this humble eagerness and willingness to serve. And, and that happens, at, it happens around the ministry of our church in so many different ways. And God is glorified in this and the gospel is proclaimed and it goes out. And that's what true followers do. Why? Because that's what our Savior did. That's who our Savior is. A humble, eager, eager servant who obeyed his Father, right? It's natural. It's natural. If you're a follower of Jesus, if Jesus is in you, this is part of the fruit of being a Jesus follower. Hey, a final thing there about Philip, just because our time is running short. And this is a big one for me. I don't want us to miss that this, this morning about Philip. Sensitivity to the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives leads to kingdom growth. 
You know, Jesus says in John 16, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Isn't that interesting? You know, we, we pointed this out at the beginning of the book of Acts, how Jesus said, it is actually better for me not to be here because by me not being here, the Holy Spirit is gonna come and be with you. And Philip experienced this firsthand. I love how in this passage, there's all these different ways that Philip's life is being touched and impacted by the Holy Spirit. All through chapter eight, in fact. If you go back to the beginning of chapter eight, there's a general persecution. The Holy Spirit uses the events that are happening around Philip, moves him to Samaria. And there he proclaims the gospel and preaches it mightily and brings about fruit. And then while he's in the middle of that campaign, he tells him, get on the road, leave this behind. I want you to go towards Gaza. And then as he's walking, he's led in his spirit by the Holy Spirit. Go run down there to that chariot, right? I mean, I mean, everything he's doing here, he's relocated through events. He's led by that inner impulsion and compulsion of the Holy Spirit. He gets up on the chariot and he uses the words of God to bring the gospel to this man. And then when it's all done and the baptism is done, as the Ethiopian eunuch opens his eyes, the Holy Spirit again does a massive relocation project with Philip and he just, boop, he's gone. And he's now in a different part of Palestine, working the field for God. The Holy Spirit's everywhere here in his life. And what struck me here is what would have happened to Philip if he had done what I often do and had put the Holy Spirit in a little box that says, you know, this is how the Holy Spirit has to work, right? And it was, to me, it was just convicting, and maybe this doesn't apply to anybody but me this morning, and if that case, I guess I'm just preaching to myself. But to me, this was a reminder of how important it is that we just stay sensitive to the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that we're attuned to his leading and his guiding, and that we don't constrain how he guides us and moves us. Because he may guide us and move us through events in our lives. He may guide us and lead us straight from the words of scripture as he just brings it, bam, right to, our, to us and he brings that sense of conviction or encouragement or insight or whatever. He may do it through the ministry of a friend who speaks words of counsel or advice or encouragement, or it just may be that sense that, hey, this is what I need to do. Or, hey, there's something not right there. Stick. It's an encouragement to all of us, church, and as a church, to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And where does this most often happen? In prayer. I now have a question for Philip when I get to heaven. When did he get that message to get on the road to Jerusalem? Did it just happen while he was walking down the marketplace? Or perhaps did it happen when he was in a, a regular time of daily prayer that the Holy Spirit put it on his heart to get on the road and go to Gaza? I'm looking forward to that answer. Hey, listen, we're running out of time. 
So we need to go to the final character. Turn our attention to the final character, main character. He, the hero of the story. It's God, right? It's God. As he does throughout scripture in this passage, in Acts 8, God is actively working to save one of his people and the extent to which he goes to bring this one guy into the family of God as a testimony to the overwhelming sovereign grace of God, right? You see God actively saving his people in this passage in several ways, right? First of all, you see it, and you just can't miss this. God sends a messenger to arrive at the right place at the right time for this guy so that his salvation could be actuated and effectively accomplished. Why did God put Philip on the road to the desert? Why? You know the answer. It was for the salvation of the Ethiopian eunuch. That's astounding. That is absolutely astounding. The Ethiopian eunuch and his salvation is so important to God, right? That he will remove, he will overcome any obstacle, including, dude, you're in the middle of the desert. (laughs) Remember, where had he been? Where had he been? Jerusalem. All kinds of Christians in Jerusalem. Peter's in Jerusalem. John's in Jerusalem. All these apostles are in Jerusalem. Why not send one of those guys to him? Been a whole lot easier. Why do it like this? Why? There's a message here for us. (laughs) There's nothing that is going to stop God from bringing his people into the kingdom of God when it is their appointed time of salvation. He will bring that person into the kingdom and he will bring people to the earth. And you know, not only did he do that for the Ethiopian and when you look back at your own life, he did it for you. If you stop and you look back and you consider the history of your own life and when you think about your own journey of faith, you'll begin to see people at strategic times that God worked through and used to bring you to the point of salvation and usher you into the kingdom of God. He's actively saving his people. There's nothing left to chance here. Don't you think that Ethiopian eunuch was grateful for Philip (laughs) showing up out in the middle of the desert? That was an incredible day for him. God actively worked to save him. You see it there. You also see it in the fact that he sent his son to be slaughtered as a sacrifice for the sin of that Ethiopian. He's reading Isaiah chapter 53. Now the passage of the scripture was this, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus That one passage, so important 
You know, the Jews looked at that and still look at that as the Messiah. And you think of the Messiah as a conquering Messiah. And it was Jesus who reframes it as a suffering Messiah. And clearly this had been passed down through the apostles to the disciples. And Philip helps this Ethiopian understand, no, the Messiah has to be a suffering Messiah. One who is slaughtered for the sins of God's people. And unless we understand that, there's no understanding of our need for salvation. And, and why is this, does this happen? Because God actively sends Jesus to be this sacrifice to satisfy his wrath towards our sins. God is actively saving his people. The greatest example of this is that verse right there. You know, for those of you who you are seeking answers like that Ethiopian, this is a great place to start. If you're seeking answers, a question that you should ask yourself and find the answer to is why was it necessary for God to send Jesus to be slaughtered in such a way? You may have all kinds of questions, but one of the most important questions you can ask and get the answer to is that one right there. Why was it necessary for God to send Jesus to be slaughtered in such a way? And one final way that you see God actively saving his people. At the end of the passage, they're driving along and the Ethiopian sees water and he says, hey, wait, there's water. What's stopping me from being baptized? He's believed he wants to be baptized. And so they get out of the chariot, they walk down into the water and he's baptized. And what a great image there because that, that sacrament of baptism is important. God gave it to us as a seal and a sign. It's a sign of what Christ has done for us and what the Holy Spirit has done for us at salvation, right? It's a sign of what Jesus has done and how his blood has covered our sin and how the Holy Spirit at regeneration washes away our sin. It's a seal that God has placed upon us that we belong to him and no man can pluck us out of his hand that we are now a part of his eternal family. This eunuch, he joyfully is baptized and enters into the family of God. And that baptism is a sign and seal of what took place in his heart. That external act reflects the internal reality. Was it real? Well, the early church father, or one of the early church fathers, Arrhenius in 200, picks up the story and refers to this Ethiopian eunuch and talks about how he refer, re, re, returned to that region of the world in Northeast, Northeast Africa and began to proclaim the gospel and the church was founded and started through his ministry as he stayed faithful to Christ. All of this is important. This story is important. Why? Why was it included? It's a great moment in the church, that early church, church that Luke was writing to us in our day to be reminded that God is going to overcome every single obstacle in his work and his redemptive work in our lives and the redemptive work that he's doing throughout the world that he's doing in our city through us, through other churches that are sister churches in our community. God is going to overcome every single obstacle. He will not fail in his mission and in his work so that every single person that belongs to his family will experience 
His saving grace. I am so thankful that the Ethiopian eunuch's story is included because it reveals to us that God will go to any extent necessary to ensure that his children hear the gospel and are brought into the kingdom of God. Amen. And that's what he did for you and me. And that's what he did for the Ethiopian eunuch. And certainly this encouraged the early church as they're reading this and they are spreading the gospel throughout the known world at that time and they're going into regions where there's opposition and there's all kinds of obstacles to know that the success of the mission is not dependent upon how powerful they are. The success of the mission is dependent upon how powerful our God is. And he will not be overcome in this mission. Our God is the overcomer. And he has always overcome every single obstacle to his mission. And we can be encouraged by this. As we look back at what he did with the Ethiopian, as we look back at what he's done in our life, as we look forward to what he does in our church in the years ahead. Heavenly Father, thank you for including this story. It's more than a story of the first African to come into the kingdom, as, as cool as that is. It's the story of you overcoming any obstacle to bring your saving grace to one of your children. And Lord, we thank you that that story is true for that man. It's been true for us. We ask that you would continue to play this story out in the lives of thousands of people here in Palm Bay. And would you use us as important pieces in that story. Like we saw yesterday, all the Philips and Filipinas, uh, would you allow us to play a vital role as you overcome the obstacles in people's hearts? The greatest obstacle being sin and the hardness that can happen in people's hearts. Would you use us to help see these obstacles shattered as you bring your children into your kingdom? And Lord, we thank you for the role we get to play, whether it's on a desert road in the middle of nowhere where nobody sees it and there's no recognition or no applause, or if it's in the middle of a big campaign with lots of numbers and lots of attention, whatever it is, Lord, let us just play a part so we can see you magnified, Lord Jesus, in our lives and in our city. We ask this in your name, amen.